Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. By now, it's been well-documented that non-denominational charismatic Christians played a substantial role in the January 6th insurrection, thanks in large part to Matthew Taylor's thorough work tracing the origin of that movement through to his present-day reverence for Donald Trump. If you haven't yet had a chance to listen to the two-part conversation I had with Matthew on this podcast titled Holy War, you can find them on the podcast feed by scrolling back to November 8th, 2023. We have received a ton of great feedback on that conversation, and many of you have been asking the same questions I've been thinking about a lot, like why it seems that for so many Christians, democracy is acceptable only insofar as it produces outcomes they find tolerable. Of course, in the case of charismatic insurrectionists, the twisted idea that democracy is only legitimate when your side wins starts to become quite rational if you believe that you're a soldier in a spiritual war with invisible demons for domination over physical buildings like the U.S. Capitol, and the stakes are nothing short of eternal. But outside of this proportionally small contingent, I've been wondering whether there are tendencies or even beliefs within Christianity itself that put certain configurations of the faith in direct tension with the very principles of American democracy that obviously protect religious freedom and have allowed it to flourish. In other words, are there specific threats to democracy embedded within Christian tradition? Over the next two episodes, I'm talking with the Reverend Professor David Gushy, who's written the book on exactly that. He also very helpfully, I think, examines Christianity's historical and sometimes quite fraught relationship with democratic values, both internally within a congregational setting and externally as a political technology. So here in part one, I share a personal note with David for the direct impact he's had on my own journey. He will discuss a few of the transformative moments in his career as a Christian ethicist. We look at both the historical and current challenges Christianity poses to democratic values. We'll talk about why some Christians are skeptical of democracy and the nuanced reasons for that. And then David unpacks his concept of authoritarian reactionary Christianity and why he thinks it's a better term for this phenomenon than Christian nationalism. We look at the shifts in the political landscape and examine how certain Christian groups prioritize their beliefs over democratic norms and values. And finally, here in part one, and I think this is really important, David describes the cycle of secular revolutions followed by religious counter-revolutions that certainly helps me make a lot more sense out of what we're seeing. In part two, we look at what Christianity had to do with the reactionary politics of France and Germany in the late 20th century. Uh, the allure of authoritarian leaders who promise to fix cultural issues. We examine the idealization of a past Christian nation and the ubiquitous use of anti-LGBT rhetoric and political mobilization. We also talk about the difficulty of appealing to authoritarian-leaning Christians and the significant influence of leaders on those communities. Then David talks about some ways forward, uh, exploring something called covenantal democracy, which is rooted in the Baptist tradition, the importance of civic literacy and political ethics education among Christians to inoculate against authoritarian tendencies. And he also stresses the importance of long-term cultural and interpersonal work to build stronger democratic norms. Reverend Professor David Gushy is the Distinguished University Professor of Christian Ethics at Mercer University and the Chair of Christian Social Ethics at Fry Universiteit Amsterdam and Senior Research Fellow at the International Baptist Theological Study Center. He's a former president of both the American Academy of Religion and Society of Christian Ethics. He earned his PhD at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. 
and has authored, co-authored, edited, or co-edited more than 28 books, and his most recent is the one we'll be diving into today, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. And here's part one of Democracy's Christian Enemies. David, it's a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to Politicology. Thank you, Ron. It's an honor to be with you. Okay, so before we dive in here, uh, I'd like to share a personal story with you, uh, which is really a note of gratitude. About 20 years ago, you co-authored the first edition of a book called Kingdom Ethics, which probably most of our listeners today will uh, never have heard of. But among students of conservative evangelical theology, it was then now, and presumably in its second edition, has remained the most influential textbook on biblical ethics. And my dad was a Pentecostal evangelical pastor, and I remember coming home from college one year, spotting it on his bookshelf, and immediately searching for the section about homosexuality, which was, uh, of course, at the time, predictably disapproving. And I uh, would then spend the next decade looking for alternative interpretations and translations of the biblical clobber passages, as they become to be known, before ultimately uh, shedding that uh, Pentecostal evangelical Christianity that I was raised with. But now here's the plot twist. In 2014, about a decade after that book was first published, uh, I attended the first conference of the Reformation Project, which is, uh, for our listeners, a, a nonprofit that advocates for LGBT inclusion in the church, notably, I think, by taking a high view of Scripture. And you delivered the keynote address at that conference in which you said, we got it wrong. Uh, in fact, you had just written a book called Changing Our Mind, which was uh, a full-throated recantation of the view that uh, someone cannot be both gay and Christian. And I read it cover to cover uh, twice. With all that, it's really quite an honor to get to thank you in person for demonstrating both the intellectual integrity, I think, and the uh, moral courage to write that book, which um, meant so much to me and to so many other gay Christians who have struggled with uh, the traditionalist biblical teachings on sexuality. And I am sure that it came at a cost to you, both personally and professionally, and um, as there are so often with um, matters of conscience. So thank you, first of all. And in the introduction to this book we're about to discuss, you note that you've become fairly well-known and sometimes quickly written off in your professional circles, and, uh, and you write that you now feel at home in the uh, growing post-evangelical community. So maybe you could share a, a bit more about your journey up to this point? Sure. First of all, wow. Uh, thank you for sharing that with me, Ron. Um, I had no idea, no idea of that direct connection. I will never forget that Reformation Project conference night. I will never forget it. Um, my book had just come out and, um, and that night was electric. I felt at the Reformation Project and meeting hundreds and hundreds of people, um, in that context, LGBT Christians who had suffered so much at the hands of the church and having that moment was one of the high points of my life, I would say. Um, you'll be interested to know that the second edition of Kingdom Ethics, which came out in 2016, uh, modified the section on same-sex relationships and therefore 
lost its place as the go-to textbook in the evangelical world. So um, it is still used. Uh, the sales definitely not like what they once were. It's just a small, a small snapshot of kind of what happened after 2014. Um, but, but obviously that's nothing compared to the absolute um, joy of of being in community as a Christian with other Christians who had been told um, nothing but condemnation by the church, and um, and, real, and and realizing, uh, well, I'm a pastor by training, as you introduced me, Reverend Professor. Yes, I'm a pastor and a professor, and my pastoral heart is so moved by the suffering of those whom the church has kicked to the curb. And, um, and so I'm a, I still have the privilege 10 years later of kind of still being a pastor, uh, in a lot of online spaces and in-person spaces to, to, um, people who were, who were harmed by the traditional church. And, you know, in a sense, it connects to what we're talking about today in a big way in that there is a version of Christianity that mainly is about setting its face against any cultural change that it, it interprets as a violation of traditional Christian values. And every day, no matter what the political situation is in a country, Christians of that type are are saying no to to so many people, including their, their own children. My book is kind of about what happens when that gets mobilized as a political movement. But as for me, my personal journey, uh, I'm a Southern Baptist convert, a dripping wet Southern Baptist convert in high school, uh, full immersion baptism after I wandered into a Baptist church uninvited, um, born again in the Jimmy Carter born again era, right? Um, uh, within a year, I was sure I was supposed to be a Southern Baptist pastor. That's what my high school yearbook says, will be Southern <laughs> Baptist pastor. <laughs> um and I, I did become that. I mean, I was a youth minister. Uh, I went to Southern Baptist Seminary. I got ordained. Uh, but I also fell hard for the discipline of Christian ethics. And I went to Union Seminary in New York for a broadening of my education. And there I met uh, liberal and radical Protestants who offered a different vision. I wasn't really fully able to comprehend it or accept it at the time, but, um, but it was a seed planted, you might say. Um, if you remember that night at the Reformation Project, I talked about, I compared the history of anti-Semitism and the history of homophobia in the church. And my dissertation was about the anti-Semitism part. I wrote about Christians who rescued Jews during the Holocaust. And I wanted to know what set them apart from the 99% of their neighbors who did nothing to help Jews survive the war. And that's how my career got started. And you might say it it set a trajectory, a kind of a nagging trajectory. I want Christians to be a part loving their neighbors and being courageous and compassionate and doing justice with special sensitivity to those who are trampled on. Um, but I have seen over many years that many Christians understand the heart of their moral vision in a very different way. Um, I surfaced uh, in a dissenting role fairly visibly on two issues in the 2000s in the George W. Bush years. One was climate change, and the other was torture. And in both cases, I led or helped to lead evangelical groups saying, hey, we need to care about climate change, and we need to not support torture. Remember after you know Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib and all that, right? 
Um, and Evangelical said, well, you're, you're a bit of a troublemaker, but I guess we'll keep you around until I did the LGBT inclusion book. And then that was the end of that, right? So I'm still a Baptist, though not a Southern Baptist. I'm still a pastor, though not a Southern Baptist pastor. Uh, I don't have a church now, but I still love to preach. And, and, um, and I'm still pursuing the ethical vision that I believe I was, I was given, both from my faith and from my training, in a post-evangelical space, which is filled with millions of people here and in some other countries around the world who are utterly appalled at what evangelicalism has become. They're here, indeed. And I've met some of them. They're beautiful people. They are. Well, today we're going to talk about that Christianity's relationship with democracy now and in past times. You call yourself a center-left in the U.S. democratic context uh, person, having arrived from your reading of the biblical prophetic tradition and the teachings of Jesus, and specifically not from watching MSNBC. <laughs> why was outlining that uh, right in the beginning uh, important for you here? What, why was it important to come for this to come from a practicing Christian? It is easy for conservative Christians in the U.S. to embrace a the coastal elites are persecuting us because they don't understand us because they're a bunch of atheist liberals who read the New York Times on Sunday morning instead of going to church, right? I am, a, on the contrary, a committed Christian who's in church every Sunday I can possibly be in church, who trained in the Christian theological and moral tradition— I think I know the difference between the healthy expressions of Christianity and less healthy expressions. And so my critique comes from within the tradition, not from outside. Um, I did need to be clear that, yes, my, my um, partisan loyalties, such as they are, I'm not much of a partisan, but center, center left. Um, but but this is not, this is not um, an ideological book. This is a, a theological ethical book. One more thing, just for context and how things are going for our listeners at home, how different are these types of difficult conversations when you start from why you're doing this work and uh, and the common ground of being a believer as opposed to discussing them um, out, outside of that context? There ought to be the potential of a conversation among fellow Christians looking something more like You'll recognize this language, Ron. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. Uh, let's gather around the scripture and and prayerfully hash it out, mm-hmm. right? And you let know, it speak like to that, us, right? Yeah. Let it speak to us, and let's listen to what God wants to tell us as His people, and all of that. Hopefully, that's not triggering. I won't keep doing that. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I just did that. Just so. <laughs> so there's supposed to be much common ground, shared identity, shared community, shared faith, shared Lord, shared scriptures. When Christians talk about anything. Unfortunately, I mean, a lot of that has deteriorated, but um, I mean, I've had plenty of experiences of difficult but fruitful conversations of people across a left-right spectrum because we have some shared faith, right? Yeah. Shared, shared uh, faith presuppositions. The nature of our partisan dialogue, such as it is, especially in Trumpist era America, is I mean, people can barely talk to each other anymore, and there's no shared presuppositions, not even the shared presupposition of love of country and the desire for the common good. And so it makes any kind of public dialogue very difficult. So so having the faith background, uh, it, at least it ought to be helpful in talking to people of other of similar faith background. And then 
Um, maybe it can help people who are not connected to Christianity at least understand what Christian people are thinking. And, you know, it's a different kind of voice, a little different kind of voice than you might see on, on TV much of the time. Well, we're going to take a tour through uh, to the case you lay out in the book. And then I think I want to wrap with exactly that point, which is how can we begin to have those conversations or how can people outside the Christian tradition begin to understand what's going on inside it and, and talk to, uh, who talk to Christians in a, in a maybe more fruitful way. Uh, okay. So you note in the intro and touch on it throughout the book that there are real and serious reasons why Christians are skeptical of democracy, both in theory and in current practice. What are those reasons and, and why was it important to note that up front? Christianity is a much older tradition than modern liberal democracy. It's a faith with roots that go deep into the ancient world. Um, the Hebrew Bible, the politics that is described there has nary a shred of democratic uh, you know, content, right? Then the, the, when the church is born and goes out into the Greco-Roman world, it's, it's in the context of the Roman Empire. So both the context in which Christianity was born and the context in which the, the Bible was written, and then the first 1,600 years of the church were almost entirely um, situated in monarchies and oligarchies and uh, theocracies and and it left a residue uh, that I describe as a kind of a, a religious authoritarianism can become a kind of a default setting in Christianity, both in terms of the way we organize our own communities and in terms of how we look at how politics ought to be. There's plenty, if, if you want to be quote unquote biblical and you're asking, how should I think about politics? Um, there's plenty of places to go in the Bible to get all kinds of stuff that is fundamentally anti-democratic, right? And also the birth of um, modern Western democracy over time was associated with the weakening of Christian dominance in culture. It was a liberal, gradually, a liberalizing trajectory that ended up um, destabilizing the dominance of one or, or any Christian group in society. Uh, in the U.S., it involved disestablishing religion altogether and establishing freedom of religion and freedom from religion, right? It involved a uh, gradual expansion of the franchise so that more and more people had access to voting, including people who were not Christians. Um, and in general, it, it was part of the modernizing and liberalizing of what became the modern world. So, Everywhere that Christianity was being proposed or introduced, um, there were always Christians who were against it because they thought it represented, especially where it involved the displacement or weakening of church-state establishments or official Christianity or maybe the loosening of laws so that traditional Christian morality didn't have quite as much dominance in the law and so on. It was easy to interpret the spread of democracy as rebellion against God and rebellion against the church and rebellion against God's law certainly didn't help that in France, the revolution took an anti-clerical and anti-religious form. In the U.S., it was more mild, but, um, but yeah, so that trajectory, I think it's important to locate, in, in some ways to say it this way, it actually was quite an achievement for an ancient religious tradition to come to terms with democracy. Mm. 
It's an interesting way of putting it. I, this reminds me of uh, there's a there's a speech Alan Watts gave once, uh, who's a one of my favorite uh, thinkers. But his voice just has this lulling effect. He's talking about the absolute absurdity uh, of Christians sort of swearing uh, swearing allegiance to a republic as the best form of government while their worldview is a monarchy, <laughs> the, while viewing the universe as a monarchy. And I think in that sort of, it's a little bit, it's humorous as he's telling it, but encapsulated there is the tension, the inherent tension, I think, that you're talking about. Yes, I think there was an inherent tension, but as I say in the book and show in the book, I think there were Christian groups that were working at that tension and, and helping to resolve it from within the terms of the Christian faith. But but there were also always those, I mean, Alan Watts was right in the sense that King Jesus or God, the sovereign monarch, never leaves the Christian imagination. And what does a republic have to do with that? And a republic in which the people select their own representatives and pass their own laws, some of which will set limits on what the church is able to do um, and uh, in what the church is able to legislate in terms of its own particular morality. So uh, you might say, yeah, it, it is quite an achievement. And, but, but that means that there's always a latent possibility that Christians, for whatever reason, maybe contemporary disillusionment or being whipped up by a rabble-rouser or whatever, will say, I wonder if really, if the constitutional arrangements of liberal democracy are really to our taste. Yes. Uh, you use the term authoritarian reactionary Christianity, which I found very useful, uh, having now uh, studied this this problem in a, from a couple of different angles. Uh, you use it for the Christian political movement um, that supports or is indifferent to this uh, democratic backsliding. Uh, and I'm and I'm holding it sort of in contrast with how Matthew Taylor uses Christian supremacy instead of Christian nationalism. But there's a lot of different terms floating around. This uh, authoritarian reactionary Christianity (ARC) for short, um, and the uh, the mnemonic that people are trying to bend backwards was very bend, bend the arc of the moral universe backwards was very useful to remember that it was very helpful. Yes, but we should unpack that word uh, or that term, authoritarian reactionary Christianity what you mean by it, why you decided on that term. And, and then I think we need to place it inside what I think is one of the most helpful uh, achievements of this book, which is explaining secular revolutions and religious counter-revolutions. But before we get to that, let's talk about the term. I'm rarely satisfied with existing vocabulary. <laughs> I usually think that scholars, I mean, you should not assume that existing vocabulary is right. You need to test it and um, you know, maybe improve it if you can. That's part of the scholarly enterprise. So I've already talked about authoritarianism. I mean, the impulse towards the centralization of power in a single person or a small group of people, um, people who are presumed to have the right to rule, have maybe the competence or the, you know, in a monarchy, it's because of the family uh, in, you know, there are a variety of reasons, a variety of ways that you get here. But authoritarianism, centralization of power and a higher level of comfort with centralized authority than decentralized authority. Um, and so the American system, for example, which is constantly diffusing authority into d different branches and federalism, you know, state versus the federal level and the three branches of government and checks and balances and all that is fundamentally counter authoritarian in my view. And it was devised in part precisely to present, to prevent the centralization of power, like, uh, in the hands of a monarch or a dictator. Um, so we've already talked about how 
Christianity kind of had to learn why being anti-authoritarian was good politics. And it's funny, some of the people who taught Christianity that were people who are anti-authoritarian in their own church life. So we'll talk about that later, right? Um, so, so picture Christians who have sloughed off the anti-authoritarianism and they are, or they never bought into it, and they are authoritarian in the way they think about power. Okay. Uh, the authoritarian, a classic is the, the patriarchal family, the uh, pastor-dominant church, and the king at the head of the country. Okay. Um, so you have that impulse. But I think the, the trigger, the more unique thing that I'm adding to this conversation is the word reactionary. And, and I think that that is an accurate adjective to describe a posture of visceral, hardened, negative reaction against unwanted social, cultural, religious, and political changes. Um, and a community that sets its face against the world or the culture as it currently exists and says, um, hell no. <laughs> uh, everything about this is against God, against us, against God's will, uh, against what it should be. And I, I propose in the book that a reactionary posture towards the modern world goes back to the beginning of the modern world on the part of many Christians. But I think the more relevant um, the time sequencing for us right now is everything that has happened since about 1962. Now, the way that the, the Christian right used to say it was, what they were against was liberalizing trends in the area of, quote-unquote, family values. Sex, abortion, marriage, feminism. But I think plenty of scholarship as well as plenty of evidence in front of us shows us that it wasn't just that. It was also visceral negative reaction against uh, the, the ethnic, uh, ethnic pluralizing of America through immigration, um, against intermarriage, against the civil rights movement, and, or at least some aspects of the civil rights movement or its consequences, against uh, immigration from global South countries. Also, one should also not forget the Supreme Court decisions that tightened the application of the separation of church and state, like the prayer in schools decision. That was where people first started freaking out, 1962. So take the church-state separationism stuff as one part, uh, the civil rights movement as another part, immigration changes as another part, sexual revolution as another part, um, abortion, birth control. Okay, now picture a community that thinks all of that or feels, if it, whether or not it's willing to say it, that all of that is wrong. Mm -hmm. That all of that made America worse, not better. So reactionary, a reactionary posture towards modern social changes combined with an authoritarian religiosity that says, we already know what's right. It's dictated to us in, by the church or by the Bible. This is an outright rebellion against what's right. We must push back. Or we must retreat into little enclaves if we can't push back successfully. And I, I, I would say that sometimes the pushing back has looked like participation in democratic politics. Sometimes it has looked like evangelism and mission strategies. We're going to convert all of our neighbors. Sound familiar, Ron? Oh, absolutely. And sometimes, now more recently, it looks like questioning the democratic order itself or challenging it. Authoritarian, reactionary Christianity, it's all of them. It's a religious-based movement of negative reaction, morally tinged, 
though, about issues that are not, I mean, that are a mix of things um, with authoritarianism as its kind of default power arrangement or orientation. And I think it, that is what we're looking at. I think that's better language than some of the other languages out there. I want to get into some of the historical context you offer as well. But as you're unpacking that, I think some of our listeners, many of our listeners are, are placing that uh, Christian um, component of the Republican Party as it exists today, um, which as that reactionary Christian component in uh, the way we've described the Republican Party today, which is a fundamentally countercultural movement. And so you may think of it as the, as I do, uh, the white hot core of the uh, the reactionary core of a of a counterculture movement that is the republic that is the Republican Party now. Um, we can get into that a little bit later, but just for context, we've been we've been discussing the Republican Party and its uh, this its debasement to this point um, in exactly that way. So this aligns very very neatly uh, with. Um, a lot of the material we've, we've covered to date. So when you're writing uh, about this, you write that some sometimes these groups consider their case uh, so important that they don't always respect democratic boundaries. This idea that something can be important enough to ignore things like an independent judiciary or the peaceful transfer of power or uh, respecting the will of the voters, these really jump out at you. So to what extent do you think this level of importance is being used to ignore norms and values now? I tend to think that we've seen a, a deterioration of democratic norms fundamentally on the Republican side. Well, where does one start? I mean, you had Nixon, but Nixon was caught and he was driven from office. Uh, so I don't think it's Nixon. It may be Newt Gingrich. I mean, the way he exercised uh, the speaker's office and the the I thought from everything I've read, there, the deterioration of democratic norms in the House really begins then. Um, that when was that 90s? Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Contemporaneous uh, with with Clinton. I think that Trump legitimized in a way that hadn't been done before the direct flouting of democratic norms and. He did so from the beginning of, of his campaign in 2015. And then everything was a Zablat and Levitsky, How Democracies Die book. You know, they document how he was already violating some core democratic norms in his rhetoric in 2015, uh, such as, for example, delegitimizing political opponents as, you know, enemies of the state and the attacks on free press and, and that kind of thing, right? So I think Trump lit a match. Uh, in what was already uh, a pretty flammable environment and also helped to unleash the crazier parts of the Christian conservative world that were even less tethered to mainstream democratic values, like people who think they're in apocalyptic end times days. And so, you know, um, if it's the end times, democracy is going to be, I mean, I mean, democracy is not relevant to the end times. It's approaching apocalypse, right? right? You know, um, or the kind of holy warrior types who, you know, all of that, right? Spiritual warfare, strategic spiritual spiritual warfare, warfare, all of that. So, but everything that happened after he refused to accept the results of the election and inflamed 
his already rabid, hardcore Christian base to go along with him and not accepting the results of the election. And kind of incited them to think that maybe something miraculous slash apocalyptic was going to happen at the Capitol on January 6th. And so the holy warriors were there. So, but I, I don't think things come out of nowhere. I think it's a debasement that builds on a debasement that builds mm. on a debasement. Mm. Mm. Um, and I also, another way to say it a little more linearly is, uh, how about we say this? Your father's generation probably believed in evangelism and missions. Yes. Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson generation believed in taking the Republican Party for God and then taking the country for God through the Republican Party. Uh, I think the election of Barack Obama probably actually and re-election of Obama signaled the the sense of panic that, well, that strategy is not going to work either. And, and then Trump is elected as the uh, in-your-face resistance candidate who articulates all the anger and panic of that constituency and moves the democratic norm violation way down the road. Yeah, it's a, there was a quote that jumped out uh, from David French that you included in the book, which was excellent. Our, our Christian political ethic is upside down on a bipartisan basis. The church has formed its members to be adamant about policies that are difficult and contingent and flexible about virtues that are clear and mandatory. And so I guess what I'm trying to get at is how did Christianity arrive at this place? I'd love to go back to uh, the Puritans, if you if you could explain sort of the, the origins of um, of the Christians who sort of rebelled against the religious order at the time in favor of democracy, and then how the backlash to that happened. And by your telling in the book, if I have, have, have absorbed it well, there is this constant back and forth push and pull throughout history where. Um, you have uh, the the secular revolutions and then the religious counter-revolutions. And I wonder if you could give us a picture of what that has looked like, starting with the Puritans. Well, that's the, the Puritans are a really, that's a complex historical um, story. But, I mean, you, you, you couldn't say that the Puritan movement in, you know, in England when it was born was fundamentally democratized. It wasn't a de- it wasn't a democracy. It was more of a covenantal theocracy that that they were interested in. Um, they wanted a a truly deeply Christian England um, governed according to God's law. But though I say in the book that it had um, it had some interesting um, implications for developing democracy. For example. Um, the concept of covenant as as a, a way of organizing community in which people band together to create religious communities. So you might say that communities come from the bottom up rather than the top down. The Pope and the bishops don't create the church. The people create the church. That has democratic implications. And so they form, people form uh, covenantal communities called churches and write charters to uh, to define uh, what the goals and rules uh, of um, those churches will be. That sounds like a constitution. And the people elect uh, officers to uh, to fulfill the functions of the community, like preaching and teaching and disciplining and providing for the poor. 
That sounds like elections. Um, and, um, and the people get to deliberate together on the decisions like that uh, and might change their mind and, and vote somebody out or remove somebody who's not doing well and put somebody else in instead. I mean, that sounds like a deliberative uh, kind of a election process. In other words, uh, while the, the Puritans were theocrats in a lot of ways, the way they organized themselves, especially against the Anglican state establishment in England, um, had democratic implications. It was the radical wing of the one part of the radical wing of the Puritans that became the Baptists that uh, eventually um, moved into a more separatist posture, uh, less interest in attempting to govern, less or no interest in attempting to govern the society as a whole, um, more interest in s- establishing churches that would be faithful to God as they understood it, and more commitment to religious toleration and separation of church and state eventually, right? right? Um, so I should also mention that that the use of state power to persecute people who believe different things was one ingredient in the birth of modern democracy. Right. Um, because, because after the Reformation, when the, the landscape of Christianity fragmented, people killed each other for decades and decades about who had the right religion. And then when they settled on which ruler with which religion was going to govern which territory, they still continued prosecuting and persecuting dissidents and dissenters. Um, The idea that we might be able to organize a state on other than religious grounds and allow people of different religions to coexist, that actually was a move towards limiting government power and uh, democratizing uh, society. So those were ways in which Christianity actually was implicated in the birth of modern democracy. Before there was John Locke, there were the Baptists and the, and the, and the Anabaptists pleading for uh, religious toleration and, um, you know, uh, even for human rights, uh, basic charters of human rights. So, so I think that story needs to be told, which then makes for a, an interesting contrast with the story that I think we have now. And you mentioned the chapter that I did, Secular Revolution, Religious Counter-Revolution. Should I jump into that at this point? I'd, yeah, I'd love for you to. I think uh, it, it was Michael Walzer's book um, uh, about secular revolution and religious counter-revolution written some decades ago that that put me onto this theme. And in that book, he's a political philosopher um, from Princeton. Uh, on that, in that book, he describes India, Israel, and Algeria as post-war states that began as secular republics or democracies and within a generation or more had evolved to be much more religious and with the secular foundations of the of the democracy threatened by the religious zealots um, in all in different religious communities so so what he does in that book is to describe how a religious counter-revolution um, replaced the secular founding uh, vision. And I, in that chapter, I ask whether that is a broader story, religious counter-revolution to a secular revolution. And I would say that that is a really good way to describe how a lot of the Christian right people think about what they're trying to do right now. The secular revolution began, pick your date, 19... 
1954, who knows? Uh, the Beatles. Maybe it was the Beatles' fault. Anyway, so the secular revolution began, and now the religious, and it has done all kinds of damage, and now the religious counter-revolution must sweep it aside. And and the idea is to sweep it aside in politics, but also to sweep it aside in every aspect of culture as well. Because this is a culture-wide thing. That's why this whole idea of like dominion and all the different spheres of society is relevant, right? You want the Christian warriors to win in business and in entertainment and in sports. The Seven Mountains uh, Mandate. Yeah. Seven Mountains right. Mandate, right? But but you don't even have to have a kind of charismatic theology of all that if if the bigger or the other story is basically the secularists have have taken the commanding heights of culture. We must take it back. Now, then you ask the question, how? Well, if you're committed to democratic norms, you say, through the democratic process. If you're not so sure that you can wait on democracy, you may say, by any means necessary. Where does that urgency come from? Um, They would probably say, worry about the souls of their own children. So picture, you know, Joe and Josie Christian in um, uh, someplace in Alabama, uh, and they're tr- and you know they're trying to raise Christian kids, and um, if they send them to the public school, they may not be allowed to pray. Mm. Um, and the teachers may teach them, quote unquote, transgender ideology or something. Right? Um, if they go to a a big state university, um, they'll probably be corrupted by the liberal professors and the party scene. Um, if they turn on um, Spotify and pick whatever music they want, who knows what junk they're going to be listening to, right? Um, if they, you know, go to their streaming services, you know, we're not supervising what they're watching on TV, what they're streaming. Who knows what junk they're going to be watching on their computers? Um, it's the it's um, it's the sense of loss of control of the context in which children are being raised. Uh, and the feeling that the people who are supposed to be taking care of the children are actually corrupting them. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be social media. It could be teachers, college or K through 12. It could be business leaders who are promoting uh, woke ideology instead of selling products. Um, uh, it, you know, it's media, it's whatever, whatever comes out of the movie theater, and you know, you've probably heard people talk that way about culture. Oh. I mean, for forty yeah. years, right? Yeah. yeah, this is my this is my um, childhood. But, but I would, <laughs> right? I mean, that's how a lot of people are raised with that suspicion of mass culture. But I would say yeah, it has secular, hardened. Secular was a dirty word. Yeah, secular was a dirty word. I would say it has hardened into a panic, and an outrage, and even a bunch of conspiracy theories that that they're trying to steal the souls of our children. Yeah. So that then, if you you know, kind of general patriotic kinds of um, motivations, we think uh, the future for America would look better if we won instead of the secularists, and so we want to make America great again in that sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we want to use state power to stamp out woke ideology and and uh, push back on what's in the library for kids to read, and you know all that stuff, right? It's happening at the state level a lot, right? So moral panic is a pretty good summary. Moral panic. Yeah, it's a good term. Thanks for listening. 
Part two of this conversation is up on the podcast feed right now, in which we continue to talk about authoritarian reactionary Christianity in 20th century France and Germany and its rise around the globe today. We also look at the use of anti-LGBT rhetoric as part of these movements around the world. And David offers some ways forward in reforming the anti-democratic impulses among some Christians. If you have just a few seconds to help others find the show, we love a five-star rating in the Apple Podcast app. Just scroll all the way to the bottom of the show page until you see the stars. Or if you're on Spotify, just click the three dots on the show page and hit rate show. And of course, I hope you share this episode with someone whose heart or mind might be open to hearing it. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in part two.